0: But now we're going to pray, and this morning our prayers will be informed by the first part of our reading. Now, it, the chapters are a little bit um, messy, so we're going to read 6, 1 to 23, and then when we come to our main reading, we'll pick up at verse 24, because it just splits better at that point. So I'll just read 6, 1 to 23, and then I'll pray. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. When they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? Then he showed when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going to go down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he went there, horses and chariots, And a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. In accordance with the prayers of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink. Go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. They went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Well, we pick up our reading from chapter 6, and verse 24. Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there's a great famine in Samaria, as they besieged it. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver... And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? The king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, give your son, that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him. On the next day, I said to her, give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do So to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, and hold the door fast against him. It is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. While he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Tomorrow, about this time, a sear of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two sears of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city... The famine's in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off other things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them. We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them, after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel. According to the word of the Lord. Now the king had opened the captain, uh, appointed the captain on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seer of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Well, then we're going to have a look at that passage few things to mention is to be aware that questions will be coming up so the opportunity there'll be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments in light of the things we've been thinking about you have your sermon outline which you know what to do with and finally and most importantly let's pray our lord and god we thank you that we have an opportunity today to look behind the curtain and to see what is really going on. We thank you that your word opens up reality so we can see that it's your plan and purpose that is driving uh, everything that takes place. And we thank you that you have given us, in your mercy, eyes to see. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, it is helpful to remind ourselves of the context we find ourselves in, just so we can orientate, who is who, and what we are expecting. So, if you remember back at the ends of end of One Kings, in chapter twenty-one, the Lord has condemned Ahab. <laughs> And this has been as a result of a great evil that culminates in the murder of Naboth. And he's murdered simply because Ahab wanted his vineyard and Naboth wasn't willing to give it up. All the evil of Ahab was carried out with the help, probably more than help, of his wife Jezebel, who directed a lot of it. Upon hearing of his demise, Ahab repents. And so God says this. I will not bring disaster in his day, but in his son's days. I will bring the disaster upon the house. So as we arrive in two kings, we anticipate the kingdom of Israel is going to be taken from the line of Ahab. That's what we're expecting to happen. Then in 2 Kings 1, we have this brief account of Ahaziah, who is Ahab's son. In that chapter, Ahaziah dies as a result of an accident. Then at the end of 2 Kings 1, verse 17, we read how Jehoram becomes king of Israel, and that's because Ahaziah himself has no son. Jehoram is Ahaziah's brother, and therefore another son of Ahab. He becomes king in his place. And that's as far as we've got. That's where we find ourselves. We're expecting the demise of Ahab's line as we follow Jehoram's story, who's the son of Ahab. So we're following the king of Israel's story. Having said all this, Jehoram only plays a supporting role in many of the accounts that we've read so far in Two Kings. It's Elisha who is at the forefront forefront of many, if not all, of the accounts. And that's what we see as we pick things up this morning with the account of the floating axe head. Now, while we can affirm that iron axe heads do not float, and if one were to float, it could only mean that the very fabric of the universe, as we know it, must have been altered in some fundamental way for this strange phenomena to occur... Actually, by this point in the account of Elisha, that Elisha, as a representative of the creator, the one who sustains the world, that Elisha can cause that which cannot float to float, given as well that he's parted the water, fed the multitude with a meagre amount, and raised the dead. This sort of remarkable event has kind of become commonplace. As we come to verse 8, we see that Elisha is still involved in the king of Israel's situation. What seems to be taking place here is that the king of Syria is attempting to catch the king of Israel. And he does this by camping in various spots in hope of the king of Israel stumbling upon him and therefore in being able to catch and kill him. However, his plan never works. To the extent that he assumes he must have an informant in his midst that keeps warning the king of Israel. What's really been happening is it is Elisha who knows about each trap. It's he that warns the king of Israel. Now given the context that we've outlined at the beginning and the fact that we're awaiting the demise of the king of Israel it may come as a surprise that Elisha is warning him. Also it seems quite odd that Elisha and the king of Israel are getting on quite so well particularly given at the end of this chapter the king of Israel is to be calling for Elisha's head. The only thing that this can all mean is that this is not God's allotted time for the end of Ahab's line. The only reason Elisha knows about the threat is because God has been telling him. Therefore, since Elisha knows about it, he knows that it is his responsibility to warn God's appointed king over Israel. Unfortunately, the king of Israel has been taking the warning seriously. Now, somehow, one of the servants of the king of Syria knows that it's Elisha who has been warning the king of Israel. And so he sends a great army to seize Elisha. As we read the account, it's Elisha's servant who is the first to discover the army's arrival, and he's scared. But Elisha isn't. He isn't worried at all. And that's because Elisha can see something that is hidden from the servant, which is God's army outnumbers the army of Syria. And Elisha prays that his servant's eyes may be opened so he can see the great army that is for them. He then prays for the army that stands against them, that their eyes be shut. And it's in this momentary blindness that he leads the people to become captives in Samaria. And we then read that the army is fed... They're sent back to the king of Syria, and this allows for a brief time of reprieve from war. But shortly after, the peace comes to an end, and the king of Syria besieges Samaria. This leads to a great famine, and upon hearing that the people have resorted to cannibalism, the king can wait no longer. For whatever reason, he believes the solution to the problem is to kill Elisha. Not only that, but he evokes the name of God in his oath to have him killed. The reason for the king's actions seem to become clear in verse 33. "This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer?" The king seems to accept that Yahweh has brought this upon the people. And even that he might bring deliverance in time. But the king's not willing to wait any longer for the Lord's deliverance. It's to this which Elisha responds. 7 verse 1. Tomorrow about this time a seer of fine flour should be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, while that doesn't mean much to you and me, what we can deduce from the situation is food has been extremely expensive, as it's been extremely scarce, which is supported by 6 verse 25 and the act of cannibalism. But what's going to happen is, within a day, food's going to become so plentiful it will be extremely cheap. And it's this that causes the captain to scoff at the possibility, saying, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this be? The comment's quite preposterous. The creator of the whole universe The one who has rescued slaves from Egypt. The one who did send manna from heaven. The one who fought for Israel when David killed Goliath. The one who has raised the dead and fed a hundred men to their fill with a small amount. Such a change in 24 hours is more than within God's capability. And thanks to his scoffing, the captain will see his promise fulfilled, but will not eat of it. Now the unlikely heroes of the story, they are are the four lepers. And their logic for visiting the Syrian camp is it is their best chance of survival. There's no point entering the city, they will die. If they stay where they are, they will die. If they go to the Syrian camp, well, they may well die. But they're going to die anyway. But if the Syrians do spare their lives, they'll have something to eat. However, when the lepers arrive at the camp, they discover the Syrians have gone. God has convinced the Syrians that an army is coming, so they fled. And the lepers begin to plunder the empty tents until they realise they should share the good news with the town that still believes it's besieged. And after a little hesitation from the king, worried that it's a trap, he sends some representatives to discover if the news is true, which it is. And 24 hours have passed. Within that time, food has become has gone from being extortionate to being so plentiful the price has been driven down. The captain who's been given charge of the gate hears the news. At which point he's trampled by the people coming into the gate. Now, as we've been reflecting on this account, there have been two realities running through the passage. In one reality, when an iron axe head falls into the water, it sinks. In the other reality, if necessary, an axe head can float on the water. In one reality, the only explanation is the presence of a mole that's giving information to the enemy. In the other reality, a man many miles away can hear the words that the king speaks in his private bedroom. In one reality, a great army surrounds a single man to take him away. But in the other reality though the army isn't aware, they're outnumbered by a terrifying army that's not of this world. In one reality, assuming the opposing army went home, it would take a city months to recover from such a severe famine. In another reality, 24 hours pass, And food is so plentiful, it can be sold for a few pence. There are two realities, but can they both be real? Is one just an illusion? Maybe it's a figment of someone's imagination. But which one is it? We'll take Elisha's servant as an example. He was only aware of one reality. As far as he could understand, Elisha was surrounded by a hostile army. But Elisha could see things from a totally different perspective. He was able to see the spiritual perspective. He could see the whole picture. He was in communion with God and as such he was aware of the different reality that swallowed up the reality that his servant was living in. It isn't that the servant's reality was an illusion. It was just he couldn't see the full picture. Whereas Elisha like Moses knew that God had a purpose which is why God continued to be patient with Pharaoh just as he continues to be patient with the various kings of Israel. As we consider Elisha's position and his confidence it's very easy to be in awe of him. He was so confident such was the extent of his communion with God it's almost like he was already living in the new reality that he was aware of. He seems to be able to transcend the events in the here and now because he has such a spiritual perspective. But should we be in awe of him? Well, as we've been studying Ephesians in the last few weeks at Growth Group, we've been reflecting upon our own reality. And that reality is based upon our union with Christ. Which brings us to into a closeness of relationship with God that far outstrips that of Elisha's communion with God. In Ephesians, we have a greater revelation of the reality that many do not perceive. Which is God has raised Jesus from the dead and has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every rule without exception. And we are raised up with him And he has seated us with him. Elisha lived in the light of the reality he knew to be true. And we have a far superior reality. The fulfilment of which Elisha longed to see. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator and you've made this world for your plan and purpose and a means to fulfil it. And so as we reflect on these things and we think they might be a bit too fanciful or might struggle to understand how it can be possible might we remind ourselves of who you are, that you're the creator who brings the world into existence by speaking, that you're the mighty God who rescues slaves through your mighty acts, that you, the earth is yours, it belongs to you, and you use nations to bring judgment upon other nations. And that you are the one who sent your son into the world to unite both Jew and Gentile to become a new man. And so as we reflect on these things, we'll we'll not be surprised. But know that this is the plan and purpose that we are swept up in. And as we think about these things, we pray, Lord, that we'd know them to be true for us now as we anticipate the full consummation of them in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. Any thoughts, questions, or comments? Yes, Hannah. My question is about that horrific section in chapter six about cannibalism. Why, I guess, why was that going on and why did the king blame the monarchy for that? Okay, let me have a go repeating that for the recording. So um, we've got this horrific section in. Chapter 6, um, you've got the cannibalism. So, two questions. One is why is it happening? And why does the king blame Elisha? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. So a couple of things, maybe. I, I don't know whether there's anything in this, but one of the things I thought about in the week was how it's an interesting contrast between Solomon. Because it, it it's very different, but it feels quite similar. There's two women with two children. One dies, and there's this sort of like, who, who does the child belong to, and they're claiming it. And he brings wisdom to the situation. All of a sudden here, you've got quite a similar situation. You've got two, two women... Two children, they approach the king, and he just has got no idea. And I wonder whether... They, that, that, I feel like that's just quite an interesting contrast because you've got the wisdom of Solomon at the high point in Israel's history and this really low point in Israel's history and an evil king, and he's, he completely lacks wisdom. There might not be anything in it, but I thought it was interesting anyway. The other thing to mention is I think to understand what's happening here, you've got to understand the desperation and the position these people find themselves in. You know I've never felt hungry. You know, I've felt hungry, but I've never felt hungry like this. And I don't know what we would do in the, if we were in the same situation if, we had been, if, if the days had passed and there was no food. Uh, What lengths will you go to to get food? I can't answer that question unless I find myself in that situation. I obviously don't want to find myself in that situation, but I think it's one of those things that you've kind of got to appreciate. Um, Because I don't know what it feels to be hungry. I mean, I know what it feels to be hungry, but not really hungry. This is a whole different level. So I think that's the one thing to think about um, other I mean the other thing as well is that I don't. I didn't look it up but I wouldn't be there are times when it's warned that if the people sin they'll end up behaving in such a debauchery manner that it will inclu- include eating one's own children um, but that's only from memory I don't know whether that features in Deuteronomy 28 or whether that's the And I think the prophets talk about that. So there's this expectation of... It really just does describe the... ...low position and status of Israel... ...because their behaviours become so um, corrupt. Um, Interestingly, from the king's point of view... ...when he tears his clothes, he's already got the sackcloth on. So he does appreciate the state of the situation... And it's, and he doesn't, you know. He obviously clearly thinks the cannibalism is wrong, and it's that that causes him to tear the clothes. With regards to the second question, I think what the most important thing to remember is that Elisha and the king of Israel are not best of friends. They're not on the same page. They're even though we've had this uh, thing back in. 8 to 10, where the, Elisha's been warning the king and saving the king's life, and the king's been taken on board. It seems they're quite friendly at this point. But if you remember what we've seen before, um, there's been a time where the king said, I won't answer your question, but because the king of Jude is with you and I respect him, I will answer your question. And there's elsewhere um, where the king's angry because someone sent him... When Naaman comes, he says, what am I going to do? And you kind of think, well, the obvious answer is send him to Elisha. But I think that's the thing. Elisha's not in his radar. He's, they are kind of very much enemies. So at this point... And I think one of the things is that the, the kings often see the prophets as troublemakers... So if the Lord has sent trouble, he sent it through the messenger. So he thinks, let's get rid... Well, I guess it's literally shoot the messenger, that sort of thing. Um, So how much he thinks he's going to solve the problem, I don't know. But I think because he's God's representative and he knows God's brought this on, he takes his anger out on Elisha. So think that's what's going on there. Any more? Yeah, so in verse 33, it says, this trouble is from the Lord, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So, yeah, I think that supports the idea that he's attacking Elisha because he's God's representative and it's God who's brought this upon them. And, I mean, I guess it might be the sort of thing of, actually, if I kill Elisha, maybe God will bring the deliverance on sooner. I don't know. I mean, you know, how... Obviously, how does his rationale work? It's not working, is it? Because if it really worked, he'd repent and put his trust in God. That's the rationale he should be following. Last chance, or we'll leave it there. Okay, we're gonna sing our next song, which is O Great God of Highest Heaven.